nugget that I see in this text. I see a lot of nuggets. The book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 and following. I'm reading from the King James Version. This is Peter's preaching after the resurrection. It came to, I'm sorry, verse 22. You men of Israel, hear these words. That's the way the apostles preached. You men of Israel, read my lips. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. They knew him. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves also know. Peter said, you men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, you know him. You know him. He did miracles. He did wonders and signs. God gave him that power and you know it. That's the way he preached him. I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You have taken and by wicked hands you have crucified him. Can you imagine a preacher standing up in the church saying, you, you, you killed him. Amen. You did it. I tell you. But he says, whom God has raised up. God undid it. Having loosed the pains of death. Here's where I want to focus. Because it was not possible that he should be holding a mission impossible. You may be seated. Mission impossible. A lot of us, and I do too, we, we focus so much on Paul. And Paul was a great preacher. His ministry more or less dominated the book of Acts. But he wasn't the first one to preach in the book of Acts. Peter was the primary spokesperson of the early church. And sometimes Peter's messages kind of get pushed to the back burner. But here, Peter stood up right in front of 
those who had crucified Jesus and said, you did it. You killed him. There are some things in this text that you could read and if you don't stop long enough, you might not even realize what Peter just said. So I want to slow down a little bit and hover over two or three things that Peter said. He said a lot. But he said Jesus of Nazareth verse 22 a man approved of God among you. Jesus was a man. He was a human being. This is biblical theology. He was 100% human. If he wasn't, he couldn't have died. He was 100% human. He was a man. Came from Nazareth. You knew him, Peter said. But he was approved of God. He was a man that was sent by God. He was a man that came to represent God. The proof that God sent him was the miracles, the wonders, and the signs which God did by him. And you saw them. Peter said, you saw what he did. You saw him raise the dead. You saw him give sight to the blind. But verse 23 is a bombshell. He says, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Peter's saying that Jesus' death wasn't a victory for you. You didn't take him. He was given to you. He was given to you by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What in the world does that mean? In the book of Revelation, John says he was slain before the foundation of the world. Peter said Jesus' death didn't take God by surprise. God sent him to you. You killed him. But God knew he was going to do it. But God knows everything. So he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's why I love the time I spent in seminary. And I hope I can go back one day and get some more. We get into these kind of discussions. 
What does this mean? Does it mean that God is responsible for his death? Does it mean that God is guilty? Does it mean that we're free because God did it? God could have saved him? That's not what Peter says. He says in that same verse, you have taken and by wicked hands you have crucified and slain. Let me put it a different way. Maybe it'll sound a little bit easier for you to swallow. God sent his son to love you, to reach out to you, to bring you back to him. And you took him and you killed him. God knew what you were going to do. But that didn't stop God. You're still guilty. God didn't kill him. You killed him. I could spend the rest of the day talking about that verse. But that's not where my burden is today. The burden that I have today is found in verse 24. Peter said, whom God had raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Peter said, God raised him because it was impossible for death to keep him. Impossible. Isn't that something? Death couldn't keep him. It was impossible. The expression days of infamy that term was used by President Franklin Roosevelt referring to the December 7th, 1941 when Japanese bombed the base at Pearl Harbor. He said this day will go down as a day of infamy. We've seen some days of infamy <laughs> in our lifetime. Saw one of the craziest exhibitions of abuse ever in my life this past week in the Tennessee House of Representatives. Amen. Did y'all see that? Yeah. 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 Isn't that crazy? Yeah. 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 They came to their own. Members of the House of Representatives came to the House of Representatives to speak on behalf of the people who elected them to represent them. Amen. In the face of three children being killed, three adults being killed, the three representatives came to the house where they were elected to serve. <laughs> Turn the microphones off. They didn't want to hear them. 
All they were saying was, well, let's come to some agreement about guns. Jesus' trial was the same kind of situation. Pilate said, who you want me to release? This murderer, Barabbas? Or Jesus? Who's done nothing wrong? The folk released Barabbas. So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. I don't, I, I'm trying to move on. I'm trying to move on. <laughs> but we've seen some crazy things. <laughs> but Peter stood up and said, you men of Israel, you think you've done something. You killed him. You did kill him. He did die. But where is he now? People want them to know that God raised him from the dead. And the reason that God did it, because it was impossible for death to keep him. Have you ever thought about Jesus was buried in a borrowed tomb? <laughs> no. You don't even have to clean it when I leave. I'm not going to disturb anything. <laughs> A barber tomb. Left the linen clothes right where they were. They didn't even have to make up the bed when he got out. He left everything just the way it was. Why couldn't death hold him? Well, first of all, it couldn't hold him because of his power. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. <laughs> I am the life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. How can death hold the one who created life? Death couldn't hold him. Because of his divine power. Power said, man, don't you know I got the power to crucify Jesus? You wouldn't have no power over me except my father gave it to you. You're not taking my life. I'm laying it down. Have you ever seen a man standing in front of a judge about to be executed and saying, take my life if you want to. But in three days, I'm going to. Right I'm going to take it back. Come on now. That's the kind of Lord we serve. Yeah. Death couldn't hold. It was impossible. So these soldiers, these cruel men that Jesus described. I want to give you just a little bit. I don't want to stay there either. Because the young men did a great job of telling us about God, God, for telling us about Jesus' crucifixion. But I do want to I want to bring some of this news to you. Because sometimes I think we forget it. Amen. I want you to be mindful 
of the place of Christ's crucifixion. It was a prominent place. It's recorded in each of the Gospels. It's called Golgotha. You heard the young man mention it today. I want you to visualize, if you can, this gruesome scene. And let me do like the TV newscasters say. The words I'm about to use might be inflammatory and sensitive to some of you. <laughs> and you might find it disturbing. Amen, amen. Okay. I, I do say that. Yeah. But the place of his crucifixion was called Golgotha. The place of the skull. My wife and I actually in 2016 went to Israel. I don't know if you remember it or not, but we actually looked from a distance at that place. But I think what's despicable about it is that it comes from the Latin word which is Calvary. It resembles the skull of a dead man. It's a place that's literally littered with skulls. His crucifixion took place on a hill called Golgotha. Even worse than that, Golgotha was the holy place of Israel. So they took Jesus to the holiest place in Israel. The place where the Jews worship God. His death was not, his crucifixion was not done in the dark. No, it wasn't lethal injection. You know how we do. It was cruel. They took him to the place where multitudes of people had been killed. They don't even bury you after you're dead. They just let the body fall off the cross into the rock. But Nicodemus, who was one of the rulers, asked if he could take the body of Jesus. He didn't want to see his body rot like that. He must not have read the scripture that said his body shall not see corruption. <laughs> but he arranged with Arimathea, a rich man, to borrow his tomb to bury Jesus. And so they came and they took his body. But he was buried, he was crucified in a public place where everyone could see. It was also a prophetic place. Not pathetic. It was pathetic. <laughs> but it was prophetic. The place of Jesus' crucifixion was the same place where Abraham offered up Isaac. Isn't that interesting? 
But God told Abraham to go to this mount called Moriah and take your son Isaac and lay him there on the altar. The same place. Isaac, however, was spared. But Jesus died. He really did die. And not only that, it was a painful crucifixion. The Bible in the English language kind of waters it down and just says they crucified him. You know, we use words, Luther, oh, you just crucified me. You know, what's the word one of you? We use these euphemisms, you know, to kind of soften the blow. But crucifixion is a terrible thing. First of all, the criminal doesn't get any sleep. They know in advance that they're going to be crucified. So what happens is they bring these exhausted criminals to this place of execution. And not only that, they have to carry their own cross. They parade them through town. People get a chance to laugh at spit on them. Make all kinds of insulting remarks concerning them. Then they take them and they throw them down on the ground. And they take these long spikes. I'm not talking about these ten-penny nails or these little common nails. No, they take these spikes, these long, sharp spikes. They don't give you anesthesia. They drive these things through their hands and feet. A lot of people die just getting on the cross. I know some of us will probably die on the way. But they, they parade him through town. Isaiah said he made his bed. He was numbered with the transgressor. They treat him like a common criminal. And yet, God forbid, is that a man? Entourage, secret service, taking him to be indicted. Amen. Jesus didn't have no secret service with him. He had them. He did have them. He's looking on my father to call 10,000 names. But he didn't call them. He told him to stand down. I got this. But they paraded him through town. There were hours of limitless pain. They twisted their ankles. They broke their bones. This is what normally happens in crucifixion. Mark simply says they crucified him. He endured the pain. 
while they nailed him to the cross, they were talking about him. You the son of God, come down from this cross. You the son of God, save yourself and save us. And not only that, his mother was there. Can you imagine how cruel that was? His mother is there looking at how they're treating her son. And yet, there was nothing she could do. That's all these representatives were doing. They were saying, look, children are being killed in schools. These young people out here, they're protesting. They want something to be done. And they said, we're going to do something about it. We're going to get you out of here. (laughs) (laughs) And so they put out the one who were trying to make a difference. So here's Jesus hanging on the cross. But interestingly, when he died, the son said, I'm not going to shine no more. The son refused to shine. The temple, the, 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 the building split. And the dead got up out the grave. Because the son of God in whom was life had been killed. pierced them in his side and they rolled dice and took his garment home for souvenirs they sealed the tomb they put a boat, big rock in front of the grave put some glue on it all right, all right. so nobody would steal his body yes, and they posted some guards to watch him so that his disciples wouldn't come back and steal his body. But that's a little bit about the crucifixion. There's much more, but I don't really want to go too much further. I was reading uh, an article. It was an excerpt from a book written by a gentleman by the name of Robert Coleman. The title of the book is The Blood of Christ. And in this particular article that I was reading, there was a little boy who had a sister who was ill. She had a very rare condition. And the only way she could live is that she would have to have a blood transfusion. But it would have to be from someone who had the same blood type that she had. And the only person that they knew of was a brother. They asked this little fellow if he would be willing to give some blood for his sister so that she could live. He thought about it for a while. And he finally consented. When they came in to take the blood, they drew the you know blood out, they draw blood. Some of you know about that type of process. I always close my eye when they draw my blood. <laughs> when 
when I went to the doctor, they gave me some candy, they gave me some, some juice, they gave me some, all these little trinkets. <laughs> Maybe. And I took them too. Took them. <laughs> but anyway, after the nurse finished drawing the blood, the little boy kind of woke up. He said, when am I going to die? And it dawned on the nursing staff that this young boy believed that in order to give his blood to his sister, he would have to die. He was willing to die for his sister. But the Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us. There was no guile. There was no iniquity. He done nothing wrong. But he took our sin. He took our punishment. They put him in the grave. He died. But the Bible says that God raised him up. Now again, I'm since I can't cover the whole story, let me try to hasten to some kind of conclusion. There are several passages of scripture that talk about Christ's death. Christ predicted his death. Christ told those who were going to crucify him, he said, destroy this body, this temple, and in three days I'll build it up again. Yes. You don't take my life, I lay it down. Yes. So Jesus said, I have the power. I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to take it up again. And so in trying to fast forward a little bit here, he's in this tomb. Can't you imagine how discouraging that was? The disciples, the men, they gave up on it. They thought he was gone. He was dead. Lay down. All the people that hung around were a few women. They they knew he was dead, but at least they didn't run. <laughs> they went to the grave that morning with their spices and ointments. Wanted to spray the area, make sure there was no odor. Tell them that he was alive. Peter's main point in this verse 24, having loosed the pains of death. When Jesus went to the grave, he 
had a battle with death. I don't know how it went. I wasn't there. And the Bible doesn't give us all of the graphic details. But the book of Revelation says that he saw Jesus. And he said he saw him holding up some key. And said, I am he that was dead. But I'm alive. Forevermore. I've got the keys to death. So when Jesus went to the grave, he defeated death. That's what John said. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There was no more sun. There was no more moon. There was no death there. When Jesus died on Calvary, he crucified death. He said, death, you don't have any authority over me. Took the keys from death. Walked out of the grave. And said, all power in heaven and earth is in my hand. Peter said, he did this because it was impossible for death to hold him. Death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold him. And Peter was later joined by Paul. When Paul went on to say, there's no resurrection then our faith is in vain, our hope is in vain, and so on and so forth. Because he defeated death, death is no longer a threat to us. We shouldn't fear death. We have no reason to fear death. Jesus said, why are you fearful of men who can only destroy your body and soul with death? You ought to fear God. Who can destroy both body and soul in hell? Don't fear man. The worst thing a man can do to you is kill you. That's the worst. But Jesus can destroy your body and your soul. But Jesus took the sting out of death. He told death that you don't have anything over me. He did die. He died because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. He had to die because we were guilty of sin. But he didn't have to stay dead because once the debt was paid, he told his father, it is finished. And into thy hands I commend my spirit. It's finished. It's over with. It's done. And you'll never do that again. That's why the grave couldn't hold him. How can the grave hold the one who holds the keys to life? How can the grave hold the one who is life? Therefore, you and I should not be discouraged. I think about my deceased parents. I think about my many loved ones and friends who have gone and preceded me in death. It, yeah. it does break my heart. I do cry and think about them every now and then. Yeah. But Paul says to be absent from the body yeah. is to be present with the Lord. Right. You don't have to fear death yeah. because Jesus has won the victory. Yeah. Thank you. Peter said a lot of things in this sermon. Read it. Acts chapter 
2, verses 22 through about verse 38. He talks about Jesus and how he was the son of God, how he performed miracles, how these men knew him, how he was approved by God, how he did these things right in their midst, and how you, you killed him. You killed him. But God raised him up. Because death could hold mission impossible. Impossible. It's impossible for the Son of God to be dead. Have you ever thought about it as I close? It ought to be a no-brainer. There's not a religion in the world whose founder is either not dead already or going to die. to claim mission impossible. It's impossible for death to hold him. And so if death couldn't hold him, we who live in him, we who put our hope and trust in him have that same assurance. Jesus was talking to Mary and Martha. They said, Jesus, do you believe? He said, yeah, Lord, I believe in the resurrection. I believe that one day you're going to come. Jesus said, I am. I am the resurrection. He didn't believe in me, though he were dead. Yet shall he live. Do you believe that? We serve a living God. Why should we fear what men can do to us? They tried to kill him. They did. But he only died because of the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. He died because God gave him to those sinful men. He came reaching out to them. And they took him and they killed him. Appreciate the ministry of music from our praise team. And we appreciate each of you who have come today to worship the Lord. I want to invite you to a passage of scripture that's only recorded by John. Many of the verses of scripture that we read from time to time, you can find them in a lot of places. But we have here a passage of scripture that only John recorded and I think that it will be worth our reading today John chapter 17 beginning with verse 1 the gospel of John fourth book in the New Testament John chapter 17 Beginning with verse 1. These words 
spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And then, if you skip over to verse 17, well, verse 15, the entire chapter is a prayer. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You may be seated. I find in this passage of scripture an interesting observation. And what I love about the scriptures, among many things, is that no matter how many times you read it, no matter how many sermons you hear preached from these passages, there's always something different and new every time you read it. You can never exhaust the word of God. And as I looked at this 17th chapter of John. Not only is it only recorded by John, but it is one of the most intimate portions of scripture ever recorded. You may not follow me immediately, but I want to use for a subject caught on tape. Guess who's praying for you? Caught on tape. Guess who's praying for you? As I said earlier, when the young man was standing here greeting us, I have a vivid remembrance of my father on his knees praying for me. Not just for me, but praying for his family. And I know he didn't see me. And he wasn't trying to be seen. He would wear these I think you all call them long johns. Now, some of the women don't know what long johns are. I don't think. I don't know. It's thermal underwear that men wear. Nice. Yeah. And my father would be wearing these thermal underwear. Down on his knees. Beside his bed. Praying for his family. 
And I, I saw this. I never told him that I saw it. I never told him that I heard it. But it never left me. The thought that he was praying for us. And when I look at this text, even though I've read it many times, and you've read it, it dawned on me that John, the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who says he outran Peter, the one that Jesus said, behold your mother. This is John, the beloved disciple, the author of the fourth gospel, also 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Nobody else recorded this prayer but John. And that's why I say caught on tape. Because in this prayer, we have the most extensive recording of Jesus' conversation with his father. John 17 is not Jesus standing in front of a crowd teaching. It's not Jesus preaching a sermon. It's not him rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's not him talking to his disciples. It's a personal recording of Jesus praying to his father. And John, who loved him so much, caught it on tape. Why do you say he caught it on tape? Well, look at what it said. There's no other passage of scripture that gives this much detail about a prayer. John says in verse 1 of chapter 17, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. John was looking. John saw him look up to heaven. He was fascinated. He, he, you know how he is with that? He had a camera. This is what Jesus said as he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour is come. This is a personal prayer, it's a conversation between Jesus and his father. He said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. I don't know if John was hiding in the bushes or if he was... <laughs> You know, hiding behind a rock. But wherever he was, he heard it. And he was close enough to see it. As you have given him power 
over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. This is Jesus praying for himself. He's talking to his father. He recognizes that he's about to die. And John caught this prayer on tape. He said, and this, verse 3, is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He told his father, I've done what you sent for me to do. He said, I have glorified you on the earth. He's given his father his final report. I've glorified you on the earth. I finished the work which you gave me to do. This is a father and a son in a private conversation caught on tape. He said, I have manifested thy name, verse 6, unto the men which you gave me out of the world. Thine they were. And you gave them me. And they have kept thy word. He said, Lord, I've done what you told me to do. I didn't let you down. I recognized that the people that you gave me were not mine. They were yours. Thine, they were yours. They're yours, Lord. I finished the work you gave me to do. And now, O oh Father, glorify me, verse 5, with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He was ready to go back home. Yeah. I don't want to come home, Daddy. This is a personal prayer. I want to be restored to the place where I was. Before the world was created, I've manifested your name. I've gave them your word. He says in verse 7, Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. I didn't take any credit. I didn't tell them that the blessings came from me. I didn't tell them anything to draw them to me. I told them about you. For I have given them un the words which thou gave me, verse 8, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee and they have believed that thou didst send me. And then he says something here. That's why I say caught on tape. Guess who's praying for you? He says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. They are thine. 
and all are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, let me be clear. In this verse, he's praying for the 12 disciples that he chose to be his followers. He's praying for the church that had uh, began to be formed because these men were witnessing to others. He's saying, I'm praying for them. He says in verse 11, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name these whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. This is Christ's dying prayer. He's saying, I'm going back to heaven. But I want you to keep them. I want you to take care of them. I want you to protect them that they might be one with us. Somebody is praying for you. How does it make you feel to know that somebody is praying for you? I was so amazed when I looked and saw my daddy on his knees praying for me. And he did it more than one time. And I never, ever said anything to him. John saw Jesus. He heard him. He paid attention to what he's saying. He said in verse 13, and now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wanted his disciples to experience the joy that he experienced. He wanted his disciples, he wants you and me to know the love of God. But then he says something that's kind of difficult for us to grasp. He says in verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. When I first read that verse, it sounded like he's saying, leave them here. And he is. Let me explain. He's praying that his father would not take out of the world those whom he has discipled. He's praying that his father not take them out of the world. A lot of times, and I do it too. And it's not a suicidal thought. Let me make sure y'all got this crazy. I'm not suicidal. Okay. I'm not suicidal. Don't call 911. But sometimes I, I get tired of being here. Have you ever got tired of being here? I'm telling you, it's getting harder and harder. 
stay here. But Jesus is saying, Daddy, don't take them out of the world. But keep them from the evil one. In other words, leave them here for now. And I had to ponder that. Why would he say that? Well, he said that because he wants us to be witnesses for him. If we who know Christ are taken from the world, shame on the world. If the, those who trust in Christ are removed from the earth too quickly, what in the world would our world look like? And so he says, don't take them out just yet. I pray not, verse 15, that you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil. Keep them from being overcome by the evil one. Evil is everywhere. It's, it's just corruption is everywhere. You turn the news on, you know about the news. Corruption in Tennessee, they put the three men, tried to put the three sinners out, and now the man who tried to put them out had to resign. God, he was corrupt too. He just quit. He didn't let them put him out. He just signed his resignation and left. Look at that world. He said he didn't know what he was doing was wrong, so. but now he knows. So. He saved himself that embarrassment. Jesus says in verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus wants us to be witnesses for him. Even in a crooked world, even in a perverted world, even in a world that does not want to hear us, he wants us to be witnesses for him. He says in verse 18, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. You and I are ambassadors. We have been sent to the world. He sent us into the world to be witnesses for him. But then, this is what really opened my eyes. I said he was praying for those 12 and for those disciples that had been won. But then in John's picture, I saw something else. Look at verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. Guess who's praying for you? That's what he said. I'm not praying for these alone, but I'm praying for them also who shall believe on me through their word. Jesus 
is praying for you. What's his prayer? You read it. That they all may be one. In the opening verse of Acts 2, you said they were all together with one accord. Christ is praying that we be one. That's why I, I can't say I'm a Baptist preacher because I'm not. I'm a gospel preacher. Denominations and labels are not of God. They're of man. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One. I'll pass and preach anywhere. God tell me to preach. And I hope that you understand that. We're not saved by denominations. We're not saved by titles. We're saved by faith. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. He said, I pray that they might be one. Father, as you are in me, verse 21, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. We are to be his witnesses. I'm a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> Jehovah is his name. And I'm his witness. I'm a member of the Church of Christ. It's his, it's his church. I'm a member of the Church of God. In Christ. We were in Florida. There was a church called the Real Church of God. I'm a member of the Real Church of God. I'm a member of the Holiness Church. Without holiness, no man shall see God. So I'm saying, don't let these labels that separate us cloud your vision. He said that they may be one, verse 21, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The world is never going to believe in Jesus when we got divided Christians. I don't know how many churches I passed coming down Stafford Shire Road to get here. Everyone got their own little group. Yeah. You probably passed 50 or 60 yourself to get here. They're on every corner. He says that they all may be one. Verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. Christ's prayer for us is that we may be one. Let us pray for that unity. I in them and thou in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved me as thou hast loved them. This is Christ's prayer. John heard it. John saw it. John was there. When he heard Jesus pray this prayer and he called it on tape, he recorded it. He saw him kneel. He saw him lift up his eyes to his father. He heard everything that Jesus said. 
He heard him pray for them, but he also heard Jesus pray for those who will come after them. Verse 24, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Jesus, I want you to bring them home. He does want us to be witnesses. But he wants us to be witnesses while we're here. He wants us to be with him that we might see the glory that he has. Oh, righteous Father, verse 25. The world had not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Guess who's praying for you? It's been caught on tape. Here it is. It's recorded. Jesus praying for you and for me. That's why when you, when you read, I read about Peter. Peter was saying, Lord, if everybody else leave you, I'll never leave you. This is the way in the world I do that. Jesus said, Peter, Satan desires to have you, that he may sift you as we. But I have prayed for you. We got somebody praying for us. Guess who's praying for you? If you don't know, I got it for you. It's been caught on tape. Here it is. In the pages of scripture, John, the beloved disciple, caught this prayer on tape. Go back and read it. It's not altered. It's not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. Jesus, praying for you, praying for me, praying that we would be one, praying that we would be with him, Praying that we would know his father like he knows him. Guess who's praying for you? We have an invitational song. The doors of the church are open. Maybe there is someone here today. Maybe there's someone. to you. It's caught on tape. John was there. John said he kneeled down, he lifted up his eyes and he called on his father and John heard him pray for him and for you. He's praying for us. There's somebody here today that's going through some difficult times right now. Be encouraged. 
Somebody's praying for you. Be encouraged. You got a difficult week ahead. Somebody's praying for you. Guess who it is? Count on tape. Jesus praying for us. Praying that we be one. Praying that we have the joy that he has. Praying that we see the love which passes all understanding. Caught on tape. It's recorded in John chapter 17. You can't find it anywhere else in the Bible. But John caught it. And John recorded it. And he left it for us. That we could know. That we have somebody praying for us. What are you going through right now? Maybe it's bad diagnosis from the medical doctor. Maybe the doctor's saying that there's nothing else they can do. But guess what? Somebody's praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. What's impossible with man is possible with God. He's praying for us. You can just imagine how joy-filled John was to see his friend Jesus praying for him. If you're here today and you don't know this Savior, if you don't know this friend that we have in Jesus, if you don't know that he's praying for you, we want you to come today and get to know him. It's been recorded. John recorded it in the 17th chapter of John. Somebody is praying for you. Guess who it is? He said, Father, I've done what you told me to do. I've kept your word. I've been faithful. And now I'm coming back to be with you. Even though I'm leaving these behind right now, sanctify them. Keep them. And Lord, I'm looking forward to the day when they will be with you and with me. Somebody's praying for you. Guess who it is? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that John, the beloved disciple, was close by when he heard and saw Jesus praying his high priestly prayer. When he heard Jesus and saw him lift up his eyes toward heaven and call on your holy and righteous name. John heard him pray for him. He heard him pray for us. And by the Holy Spirit's urging, 
He left this record for us that we in ages to come would be able to read and hear Jesus praying for us. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be the perpetuation for our sin. Thank you.
Today I'll be reading from the first psalm. Reading from the King James translation. I recognize that this is an older English translation. It's not necessarily the way that we speak today, but the wording is so rich. King James Version, Psalm 1, it only has six verses. It reads, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are as the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You may be seated. Today we want to speak to you from a very simple theme, the first song, the first song. You may have surmised that I have an attraction to the Psalms. Quite often over the past few weeks, many of the messages that the Lord has given me have come from the Psalms. It's not my personal design, it's God's leading. The book of Psalms is the hymn book of the early church. Many of the Psalms, as we have mentioned before, were rendered to music. Many of the Psalms were prayers that were prayed by the prayers in the temple. Some prayers were prayers of exaltation, praising God, lifting his name on high. There are some psalms that the theologians call imprecatory psalms, where the psalmist pleads with God to get his enemy. Get him, God. Those are in the psalm. Get him. You see how he's treating me. Get him. There are psalms like that. It's okay to sick God or to send God to your enemies. But the psalm that we have before us today, the first psalm, is not a prayer. It's not an imprecatory psalm. The psalmist is not asking God to get anybody. The psalmist is simply giving some instruction. And I believe it's important that we receive instruction. One of the things that I remember so most most dearly about my parents. And I can only speak about my parents. So if I talk about my parents, 
too much. Y'all can get back on the road. I can't talk about yours. I know how mine were. They would talk to us. I'm not saying we always listen. But they would talk to us. And they would give us instruction. Give us guidance. And I believe that this is what the psalmist is doing. In this first psalm. The first psalm. Gives us. Instructions. Now the King James language. Uses the word man. But understand that where the word man is used here, it refers to both male and female. Any person. So let's see what this psalm has to say. And our message is taken right from this portion of scripture. The psalm here describes two people. The godly and the ungodly. Simple as that. The psalmist describes the distinguishing characteristics of the godly. The psalmist describes the distinguishing characteristics of the ungodly. The psalmist in this psalm tells us what the outcome is for the godly and what the outcome will be for the ungodly. It's a very straightforward message. It's not hard to follow. If you just look at the verses and follow along, you'll see the message unfold. The psalmist begins by saying, blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So the psalmist begins by telling you what a blessed person does not do. You want to be blessed? Don't do these things. Don't do what? Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, the King James Version uses the word walk to mean lifestyle. You want to be blessed? Don't live by the counsel of the ungodly. Don't let ungodly people tell you how you should live if you want to be blessed. That means that you may have to cut off some friends. You may have to separate yourself from people who really want to be your friends. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Many marriages have broken up, and I'm just using examples. Because some believer listened to an ungodly person. Girl, if I were you, I'd leave that man. But then not you. If I were you, I wouldn't do. And they listen to that. As soon as you leave them, they come after them. <laughs> Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. 
you seek advice from ungodly people, you won't be blessed. Put it very simply, watch your walk. Be careful who you associate with, who you befriend. Especially be careful about those to whom you confide and in whom you confide. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sin. That's the next ex, uh, description. Watch the way you walk and watch the way you stand. The word stand here means the position that you take. Psalm 1 is like the GPS, the global positioning uh, instrument. It guides you. It tells you how to go. My wife and I were riding yesterday and she loves, I won't say she loves. She has her GPS and I have mine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm behind the wheel but she's watching her GPS. Her GPS said, go this way and you'll avoid the traffic or slow down on I-45. But my excuse is that when we started out, we didn't know where we were going. We were going to go to a certain place. And then she said, no, let's go to the other place. So I had to make some turns. Took me an hour. <laughs> <laughs> to get <laughs> because the GPS told me don't go this way if you go this way you're going to meet with slowdowns on I-45 thank God I had some gas in my car in my younger days <laughs> I didn't even worry about it I'm learning now. We got out there and it took an hour to get from my house to, what street was that? I don't know what it was. Just about 45. Many people today ignore the counsel of this psalm. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly nor stand in the way of sinners. Listen to this advice. It'll help you. Don't live the way sinners live. It'll mess you up. <clears throat> Plain statement. Nor sit in the seat of the scornful. So watch the way you walk, which means live. The way you stand, that means the way you carry yourself and where you sit. There's some things that you should never discuss with certain people. There's some folks that just love to hear your business. They're just waiting to hear it. Be careful. Psalm 1 is like the GPS. If you do this, you'll avoid a slowdown. You'll avoid a crash. You'll avoid 
unnecessary pain. So the psalmist begins by telling us about two people, the godly, the blessed, the ungodly. The psalmist begins by telling the godly what they should not do. The psalmist now tells the godly person what they should do. You want to know what you should do. We told you what you shouldn't do. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. I have a dear friend. uh, I love him dearly. I don't usually call people's names, but I'm going to call him. I have a lot of friends. But one is a brother by the name of Larry Whitehead. You met his son some time ago. He lived in the south suburbs of Chicago. One thing I can say for sure, whenever I talk to him, it's going to be about God. I don't care what's going on, what the weather's like, what the politics of the day are like. When you call Brother Whitehead, before that conversation is over, in fact, before it gets started, <laughs> it's going to be about God. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law does he meditate, the psalmist says, day and night. You want to be blessed? Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, but do this. Delight in the law of the Lord. Delight. That means let that be your motivation. Be motivated by. Be inspired by. Be consumed by what the law of the Lord is. And in that law does he meditate day and night. Day and night. Meditate on the law of the Lord. So he tells us what the godly person shouldn't do, what the godly person should do, and then he tells us the results. Here's the results of that. Verse 3. He or she shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Some of you, I always think about Sister Moody. My wife is too. She's a gardener. They spend that time outdoors, digging around in the dirt and planting and growing things. The psalmist says that the godly person who does these things and doesn't do these things will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What a beautiful picture. A tree that gets proper nourishment, that brings forth his fruit in his season. The godly person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on that law day and night will be like a tree planted by the river of water. You're going to have good results. Well, first of all, you're going to bring forth your fruit in your season. What does that mean? That means what's for you is going to be given to you at the time that's right for you. Yes. Yes. There are a lot of times we want things 
They may be good, but we're not ready for them. It's not time for you. But the psalmist says, the person who delights in the law of the Lord day and night, doesn't do these things, doesn't do those things, will gain the fruit from his tree in his season. There's a time for everything. And sometimes we get confused. We want what we want when we want it. Regardless to what the outcome might be. But the psalmist says no. He'll bring forth his fruit in his season. It goes on to say that his leaf shall not wither. In other words, your blessings are not going to dry up. What God has given you, he's going to help you to keep. He's not going to allow it to shrivel up and vanish from you. His leaves shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever he does, whatever you set out to do, you're going to be successful. If you follow this GPS, this Psalm 1. Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Delight in the Lord day and night. You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. You're going to bring forth your fruit in its season. Your leaf is not going to wither, and whatever you do is going to prosper. And what I love about the word is that it's not just told in one place. Other writers have said the same thing. Job tells us in chapter 36, verse 7, he would draw it, not his eyes from the righteous, but with kings of them on the throne. You, he doth establish them forever, and they are exalted. God does not take his eyes off the righteous. He does not take his eyes off the righteous. The psalmist, or the psalm says in Psalm 34 verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And his ears are open unto their cry. God is always looking at the righteous. He's listening to the righteous. Waiting for them to make a request. That's what the Bible says. The psalmist also says in Psalm 37, I have seen, I've been young, and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. This happened around a long time. I was a young man, I was an old man. I have never seen the righteous forsaken. If you live right, God will not forsake you. If you live right, your children won't be out on the street begging. That's what the Bible says. 
live. So follow this GPS and you will have great success. But then we go back to our text. We have to go back because it didn't end with verse 3. Verse 4, the ungodly are not so. In other words, everything we just said about the godly, it doesn't apply to the ungodly. The ungodly are not going to have these things. The ungodly are not so, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. The chaff is that, what do you call it, that excess, that weed, that, that pollen, that stuff that just flies away. You can't hold on to it. The ungodly are going to be like that. Everything they have is going to be scattered, taken away. They won't be able to hold it. Therefore, whenever you see therefore in a sentence, you ask a question. Guess what the question is? What's it therefore? Yeah. Therefore. Therefore, because the ungodly are this way, because they don't do these things that the godly do, they shall not stand in the judgment. In other words, it doesn't mean that they're not going to be judged. They're not going to be vindicated. Oh, we must all stand before the righteous seat of God, the judgment seat. And give an account of the deeds done in our body. But the ungodly, their case is not going to be won. The ungodly are not going to be vindicated. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I don't know if you all understand this verse, but in heaven, in heaven, there won't be no falsehoods. There won't be no backbiters. There's not going to be any insincere people. The ungodly are not going to appear in the congregation of the righteous. I love our church. I do. I love Willow Ridge. It's a great church, as Deacon Deason has pointed out. But in heaven, Deacon, none but the righteous. Yes, sir. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You don't have to be second guessing, looking over your shoulder, wondering. <laughs> the sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Yes, sir. And then the psalmist concludes by telling us why. For. The word for is a preposition. It means because. Because the Lord knows the way of the righteous. God knows. So often we feel that nobody knows. That nobody cares. Nobody's looking at me. Nobody's paying attention to me. Well, guess what? God knows. He knows. You may not get your just reward here. But God knows. He knows. 
He knows the way of the righteous yes, sir. and the way of the ungodly shall perish. So Psalm 1, the first Psalm, gives us some instruction. Simple, plain, easy to follow if you listen. You want to be blessed? Don't walk according to the counsel of the ungodly. You want to be blessed? Don't let ungodly people tell you how to live. Don't stand, he says, in the way of sinners. Don't do what sinners do. Don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Scornful always looking to find fault in somebody else, criticizing somebody else. No, don't get caught up in that. But set your heart, delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on that law day and night. And guess what will happen? You'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Your leaf is not going to wither. Whatever you do is going to prosper. You're going to be blessed. You'll be strong. That's what Psalm 1 says. The first psalm. May God bless you and may he keep you. When you use this psalm as a guide, use this psalm to keep you in the straight and narrow path. When the psalm says, don't go this way, don't go that way. If you go this way, you're going to encounter turbulence. Go this way. This is the word of God. This is what God wants us to know today. The first song. We have an imitational selection. Maybe there is someone here today who's been trying to go their own way. Who's been trying to chart their own course. Who's saying, I don't need you to guide me. If you're here today and you realize that that's you, you can make a difference right now in your destiny. You can just, even from the seat you're sitting in, whisper a prayer to God and say, Lord, help me. Help me to follow your directives. Help me to meditate in your law day and night. Help me to walk, to stand, and to sit in accordance with your word. When you do this, you'll be blessed. We have an invitational selection. This is your opportunity to take a look at yourself. Where are you standing? Where are you sitting? To whom are you going for counsel? You want to be blessed? Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly.
Let us stand, please, as the invitational hymn is being rendered. Psalm 1 gives us the roadmap to blessedness. Walk this way. Stand this way. Sit this way. And you'll be blessed. deacons to offer prayer for us. Any one of you brothers, please pray for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. 